This is Back to Excitement with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool. From Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 108. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. So this is a uh, very special episode of Back to Excited because we have guests, more than one guest, plural guests. Uh, so this is very, very uh, new and interesting for us. We have uh, Sean Ferris. Say hi, Sean. Hi. And Olivia Lin. Hi. So they are here um, because they... They wrote, uh, co-wrote, and kind of co-produced this uh, really interesting and excellent article about the changes that the Leafs have made to their power play from 2018 to 2019. So the the uh, Jim Hiller power play to the Paul McFarland power play, and of course the the head coaching change is mixed in there uh, as well. And this is a kind of a really nice combination of data and eye test, and it, it's the type of work we don't really get to see that much in the hockey blogosphere anymore. So. Um, I figure, you know, why not discuss this this really, really excellent piece of work with the people who know the most about it. And luckily, it focuses on the center of the universe, which is the Leafs, as it should, um, as, as all things should, really. So, uh, yeah, we're really excited to uh, to have you guys on. Uh, yeah. So we might as well, I guess, just get straight into it. Um, want to ask you guys first, how did this project arise? What made you want to do this? Um, so Sean messaged me about it and I think it was like right after the NBA season got canceled and we were like pretty sure the NHL season was going to get like postponed at least we were both going into spring break and he just messages me out of the blue and is like we should do a project and I was like yeah we're like going to spring break we're gonna have a ton of time like let's do something and like obviously I wanted to be about the Leafs because I love Leafs and Sean was like all right I think we can do the Leafs and and then he kind of threw around some ideas. So do you want to talk about the ideas that you threw I mean, out there, Sean? I forget. I mean, this is like a while ago now, but I mean, it's not like a lot has happened oh, since yeah, March, right? It's exactly. been pretty uneventful. Um, <laughs> I mean, we had a couple ideas, um, but I think like the biggest one that we that just came up was like the was the power play, just because the changes were so obvious, and we could compare different things, like instead of. Um, maybe looking at certain aspects of just like this past season or um you could i guess you could do sort of like a coaching change uh head coaching change this season or something and look into that but like the the changes were so obvious and like we knew that there was something there that we weren't gonna like waste our time so i think like power play was like the the first one like we kind of came up with um or the first one that like stuck and um like i think initially like we tossed around something about entries because Olivia's done stuff in the past on like the Leafs entries, um, but yeah, just the the power play stuck, and we basically had like this broad idea of looking at I think like passing patterns, and then gradually we just sort of formed into into what we did. That's awesome. Um, so was there anything? I think power plays are kind of an interesting thing to look at because there's more structure with power plays than there is in the in five on five in hockey, right? You can more intentionally see what teams are trying to do and the types of shots they're trying to generate. And in, in a way, it's a lot more visible what the coaching decisions are. So when you came into this, did you have any ideas of, okay, here's what I think the changes are going to, here's what I think the changes are going to reflect between the 2018 and 2019 power plays? 
Uh, Olivia, uh, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think we, I watched like every game and I know Sean watched a lot. So it was pretty obvious already, like the Matthews and Marner switching sides. And then also um, just based on like the eye test and also looking at stuff from like hockey viz, um, it was pretty obvious that a lot of the shots, shot locations were coming from like different places. So I know that we, well, 2018 Tavares was getting the bulk of the chances. He was in front of the net. And it was obvious just by watching that, like, that was the main play, was, like, beating it down there. And then I think everyone is pretty well aware of, like, Matthews starting to take one-timers this season. So that was something we also wanted to explore. And also getting Nylander on power play one. Um, that was something we wanted to see, like, what the impact of that was and what he brought to the power play. Right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Fulman, do you have anything uh, you want to discuss or add to that? No, um, it's just, it's interesting. And I'm... Just want to say that I'm kind of glad to see people do this kind of work. You know, it's so detailed and you guys put so much into it. And to be honest, sometimes I feel like the way the blog world has gone has been a bit heavier into let's dunk on this silly take or something like that. And it can be a little bit less actually trying to find things out by putting the work in and, you know, doing some real study of the play as it happens. So that was just really cool to see. It's a great article really interesting thank you so um sean what was the data collection process like because the data that you guys have and uh we should actually talk a bit about the article for the people who, who haven't read this article involves I, i'd be doing it a disservice to try and summarize it verbally i think you really do have to read it but it, it has a lot of information about kind of the passing patterns of the leafs and the way they generate their shots and the types of shots they generate right and that data is not very available shot data is and where the shots are taken from is available but the stuff leading up to it is not so how did you guys collect that and what were the the challenges associated with that sean so i had a season the season already scraped and i just did vector i believe of the um 2018-2019 season as well and so i used the evolving hockey scraper to scrape data and then filter it down to just five on four shots um and this our... is the play-by-play -play data right yeah so okay because we had to use that essentially to just be more consistent and take out like any potential bias we use that as like our base for what the shots actually were and we used unblocked shots because we wanted the shot locations and you can't get that with block shots i think that's that should be coming yeah. um for the next season whenever that may be um, just to interject here, but it, we've talked about this on the pod before, but it's the most annoying thing in the world that the NHL records blocked shot locations at the point where the shot was blocked as opposed to where the shot was taken from. I, I have no idea why they decided yeah, to make I mean, that it's a little, decision. It's I mean, I guess maybe just because that's theoretically the event itself. Um, but either way, um, and so we had that data just to be able to have a reference and we used the application. Um, that uh, Ryan Stimson uh, provided us, and he's provided that for um, our friend Judy Cohen, who used the app for a project at Ritzac uh, in what was it, 2018 now, um, before being hired by the Leafs. She looked into the BU power, is it power play? Yeah, power play. Um, and so we used that application and so we'd go through the different shots and record um, where the shot is the where the shot is just started and where it ended 
um, for each uh, shot. Yeah, we also tracked, yeah, we also tracked entries and that was just something we did. We did it through like separate Excel files. Like you could export the data for every single one of the games that we did using the um, app that we tracked Shot Assist with. So we had like a ton of different files, like one for entries and face-offs. And that's what we used to calculate zone time. So like a stoppage of play, we would record like when it stopped and like the entry would be like when the zone time started. And we did that with face-offs too. So we could calculate like face-off percentage. And yeah, it was it was a lot of data, took a long time, but I mean, it, it was worth it, obviously. That's a, an incredible level of detail. Was there anything that you were like looking for and you found like, oh, we just don't have this or we couldn't get it? I mean, I know the unblock shots thing is obviously like a long time issue, but was there anything where you got in there and you just could not get the data that you wanted or were you pretty content with what you were able to find? Well, I think like in the ideal world and we just don't, we just wouldn't have the time for that and it'd be quite difficult. But you'd want like essentially every pass in the offensive zone specifically to try to understand different things. Like we found it's kind of like just basically a blurb in there. Um, and to the point where I don't exactly remember which player it is, but I believe it's when Matthews passes back to the point, it seems that the point man is more likely to shoot or shoots more often. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how those kind of patterns emerge. Like if, shooters are more likely to shoot after receiving passes from certain players to certain areas of the ice and try to decipher why that might be so you can go in like i mean we went into decent detail um just with the shot assist but like to have like every pass or something like that like everybody wants like more data to try to look into it even further um but i think we're like fairly satisfied with what we had one of the problems that we did come up with um in that sort of process that kind of goes on that is occasionally the shot might be cord be recorded at like the wrong time so there was um i believe it was a goal um that was essentially five on three like it was just at like the end and it was recorded like a second or two late so like basically everything of that was like five on three and so we decided to just take that out of the data set because we decided that that was five on three or occasionally you'll have an extra recorded shot just like on a rebound sequence or um, like a shot that maybe just like plain old doesn't exist. Or you might even be, because we watched through them, you might even see shots that you felt should have been recorded and weren't recorded or maybe they're recorded as a block shot, you know. So the, the quality of the NHL's data, well, I think a lot of times people try to jump on it as saying like it's inaccurate well it's accurate it's just not precise so you will occasionally have like certain little um errors and i think when you go through tracking them it just kind of like irritates you in a way yeah i can imagine uh you know you're going through all this effort and then you know something's recorded terribly and it, it, yeah it would it would be frustrating because there's no amount of fancy math or technique that can take bad data and turn it into good data right so yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense um Okay, so we can probably jump in a bit into the the findings. And, and actually, maybe before we talk about the Leafs power play in particular, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on some power play stuff in general, right? Um, and this is a bit of an open-ended question. And, you know, you, you guys may or may not have a, an answer off the top of your head for this. But from doing this study, or, or, and from what your work 
uh, has uncovered in general, and I know you guys are, uh, as you say in the article, big fans of the work Ryan Stimson has done, uh, as are we all. Um, is there a particular piece of low-hanging fruit that NHL power plays are not taking advantage of that they should be? Um, Olivia? Um, I think we mentioned this, but just, like, movement, especially because... Like, for example, we mentioned Philly's power play and how they always have two people down low. But at the same time, I don't think they're taking full advantage of that. One thing that we mentioned a little bit was maybe having Austin Matthews slide into, like, the bumper position. Um, He obviously really likes to take the one-timer now on the right side, like, close to, like, the dot. But if they're moving, Matthews is obviously a dangerous shooter and scores, like, a lot of his goals in between the dots. And he doesn't take advantage of that at all on the power play, which is kind of weird. But if he were, if he was able to move into that position and they were able to find him in different spots, I think that is something that like other teams could also work with. Like every team has a shooter that they can move into that spot. Um, they can try to slide him behind the defenseman, force the defenseman to be in an awkward position to cover them. And uh, I think that's something teams can take more advantage of. Do you think that power plays are generally too static? Like, in that regard? Yeah. You know, either of you can answer. And just in terms of, like, I wonder because the power play is seemingly so coached, right? As you were saying, like, there's more of a set structure that you can perceive in a way that you can't always do in five-on-five play, which is more fluid. And do you think that that's kind of a problem? Like, they should be more fluid? Like, they are kind of overcoaching it or they're a little stationary? I don't know. This is just an impression I get watching certain power plays. I think it about Montreal on occasion. I I mean, the... (laughs) <laughs> one three one, it's it's amazing how like time actually does seem to fly. I mean the one three one hasn't been like the set structure for too too long. Um I have my history right. I think Adam Oates brought it to Washington in the attempt to get Ovechkin more one timers essentially. Um and so I think the transition to that and now that we've been there, it does kinda get a bit static. Um I think this year in particular, we're starting to see some teams, especially in the Metro, um, if we're talking trends, start to try to create um, a little bit more movement. One thing that the Capitals started to do a few years ago, where they would constantly be shifting, um, and we talked about it briefly in our article, but um, like Carlson might come down to where like Ovechkin's spot kind of is, and then Ovechkin might shift up to the point for a second, and then you know they they might they'll change positions in a way and so that can help you know maybe create more openings because you can kind of get lost in coverage um because pks are almost set to the 131 now i mean they they basically are they're designed around it and everything is kind of just in this idea of the positions and so when you kind of come out of position and then maybe come back into position it can kind of um confuse the penalty killers so i think they are definitely too static at the moment and we're due to see like another small change um i think this might i don't know if this is just the leafs because i don't watch enough of like other power plays to be confident about this but the leafs whenever they set up in the one three one the bumper and the two guys on the wings they set up in like essentially like almost a straight line sometimes so it's impossible to get those cross-sized passes because the bumper is almost always in the way so if they were able to stagger that a little bit I think that could relate to like movement, just like moving back and forth. Or I think even if they didn't move, it's possible to stagger it. So that's something that I think is an easy fix or like something that they can adopt 
even without mm-hmm. having to do like fancy movement or anything like that. Right. Uh, to Sean, to Sean's point about Washington, one thing I really like that they do is there, there's some power plays where, you know, the puck is just not getting to Ovechkin for whatever reason. And he'll do the thing where he literally just like leaves the zone and, and comes back and kind of just floats into a new spot. And you can't track him all the way up there, all the way outside the zone, because at that point he's no longer dangerous. But when he comes back in, it's, you know, it's a real problem because, okay, where is he going to be? And obviously with Ovechkin on the power plays, maybe the greatest power play shooter of all time. Um, you have to be conscious of that. So, yeah, I think those are both kind of good points. I, I think one thing that stops NHL coaches, I think the, the, the counter to, to the movement, and I think in general, you know, it's, it's a good idea to try and get more movement and, and perhaps a little, little bit less structure in NHL power plays. Um, I think NHL coaches are always worried about what happens when things go wrong, right? And when, when you introduce movement, you introduce the possibility of players like overrunning pucks and then being out of position, and then it becomes a two-on-one the other way. And I think I think coaches stay up at night you know, worrying about that sort of thing. So how do you think there's a way to kind of work, to, to institute these ideas while also kind of working with the natural risk aversion of coaches? Because I, I think to some extent, that's a, a battle you're always going to have to fight. Um, I mean, I think when you kind of plan those movements out, for example, and you talk about them, and maybe movements can sometimes be wrong and terms of like maybe maybe the wording but sometimes they're basically like activations like it's a common thing for now for the net front guy to come down and receive a puck from a guy on the half wall or something like that or even um uh like a set play kind of behind the net um so i think those types of things they're introducing movement slowly but surely um and so I think introducing slightly more of those activations of those set types of things will work out well. Um, but like, you don't want to like tell the guys to just go skate circles around there. Like, not that kind of movement, but like kind of set stuff that you, you sort of plan. Obviously, it is kind of scary to go out on like the ledge like that. Especially we've seen like a ton of head coaches just kind of get fired. Like the Gallant firing, for example, was kind of just out of nowhere essentially uh i'm sure there's stuff going on inside but like i think basically both sides of the aisle if you will if you're going to talk about like analytics and and eye test people i mean everybody kind of has the respect for galant and we all sort of seem to like the knights the golden knights and then you know he gets fired so it's tough it's tough to take that risk as a head coach so i see your argument there but i think if you introduce it in a structured way but it's just different types of movement i think that can kind of bridge the game that makes sense i I know um later on in your article you guys talked about almost a five up power play where um the point guy was moving into the mupper position or moving up aggressively and and like i was like a bad hockey player i played a lot of it at a low level because i'm terrible but like all of my coaches past were like oh my god they're gonna get killed by shorthanded rushes or something and i just lived in fear um, but, you know, you guys were saying, like, look, sometimes you have to really press with that five-up TP. Do you want to talk a bit about that idea where you talk about that pressure? And, Olivia, do you want to go ahead on that one? Or Yeah, I think um, we we mentioned, like, a 5-4 power play just because the Leafs do have such, like, high-skilled players up front. And I, I think um, we saw a little bit of it in overtime when they went, like, four-on-three when, pow- when there was a penalty and that worked out pretty well and it looked great. 
And it's situations like that where it's you need to score and it doesn't really matter if the other team ends up scoring on you, that I think that would be a really good option. And especially having Spezza now, Spezza was um, huge on the second power play, but he's also a really good shooter and he has like great hands and he's a good passer. So I think bringing him on the power play just gives one more option. And obviously he's a great player. Like he is pretty aware of the situation and he's able to come down. I think it really comes down to like which players you want playing the point and knowing when to activate, like when to be smart enough to go down and not just a player that, you know, can't really read the situation. Um, And I think even with the five forward power play, it could be interesting to see like if Spezza was on the point, him and Marner switching like Carlson and Ovechkin do just because Marner is able to pass from anywhere whereas Spezza you know he's a he's a righty so he can open up for the one-timer on that side so it just gives a little more with like shooting options and as well as passing options having five forwards with all of them with high skill yeah that makes sense the the concern I would have about at least Spezza there specifically is a lack of foot speed to be able to to cover uh, to cover the points if, when because the, the 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 top guy in the power play needs to be able to kind of go from one end of the blue line to the other in order to keep pucks in and that stuff I think that would be a tough ask for Spezza at this point in his career but yeah like you said in, in situations where there's very little risk of or there's very little leverage in terms of the defensive side of it you might as well give it a shot right um, it, it's certainly not something that I think is obviously you know completely doomed to fail in every situation there, there there's ways to to work around it um okay one, one other thing i want to ask and maybe the, the last kind of general question we have before we get really into the nitty-gritty of the leaf stuff um how would you compare the strategy of the leaf power play with other kind of well-known power plays uh in in the league like do you think overall do they have do, does the Leafs power play have kind of a solid theory behind it is it something where you think, okay, what they're trying to do is something logical and something that would work. And just to kind of expand on what I mean a bit, when I watch Montreal's power play, you know, Fulman mentioned them a bit earlier, I watch them and I think, even in the best case scenario, this is not that great a plan. Because what they do is they try and set up, you know, essentially for Shea Weber shots, and they have a brilliant net front player in Brendan Gallagher. Um, but they're, they're basically trying to optimize the number of times they get Shea Weber to maim someone. And it's like, okay, cool, you can do that. You can set yourself up well. But your best case scenario is a Shea Weber, you know, one-timer. Not that high percentage of shot from where he's taking them. So I think the theory of that power play is flawed. How do you find the theory of the Leafs power play relative to other kind of high-level power plays in the league, such as Boston and, and Tampa Bay, Sean? I mean, I think it's it's all, they're all similar concepts. Um, what separates, say, the Bruins is they have essentially two elite left-handed playmakers and they have Bergeron the bumper as a one-time option, and then also Pasternak, you know, as their primary option. And they generally will like run different sorts of like shifts between alternating um, between Krug and Marshawn. So, say Marshawn might come up to the point; it almost kind of looks like basketball. You know, Marshawn will almost switch to the point with Krug, and then Krug is going down the boards like almost like a rush, and so that the passing lane is constantly moving. And then Pasenak's kind of moving down. So it's a little bit more fluid, but it's the same sort of concept where they have a primary guy, just like Washington, um, or even 
I mean, Tampa has, I guess, even more shooters, right? You have Stamkos and you have Kucherov. But, you know, you have sort of your primary option for a one-timer that you're looking for, and then and then you're trying to kind of almost find them from the other side. Um, and so I think they do have, like, a different differentiator with the fact that they have two elite left-handed playmakers where um, the Leafs have one and then Barry played most of the season on PP1 and he's just not he doesn't have the mobility and the, the playmaking skills prowess that Krug does or at least that's not unleashed um, but I think it's kind of the same theory, the base theory of we're trying to get the puck to one guy and we have other sort of options right you, you sort of have Tavares in the slot now you can still sort of play it down low Marner tries to take one timer sometimes and and you'd even have Barry who's a decent shot and he has like good experiences as a point man. So you do have those alternate options but you're trying to get a main guy. Try tries is a great word. <laughs> tries is a great word for what happens when Marner takes one timers. Yeah, I was trying to be that's nice the here. best thing. Yeah, that's the best thing we can say about it. He tries. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay, yeah, that yeah, that makes sense. It, it seems like they are it's similar theories, as you said, where, where they're very intentionally trying to get the puck in the hands of their kind of high-end shooters, Pasternak in the Bruins' case, um, and Stamkos Kucherov in Tampa Bay's case, and obviously Matthews in the Leafs' case. Um, Fulman, I remember when we were discussing this in, in preparation for, for this podcast, you, um, you wanted to kind of touch on one of the differences between kind of the theory of the 2018 Leafs and the 2019 Leafs, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest thing that seems to come up in your guys' research is it's the Austin Matthews show now. And, you know, to an extent, you know, obviously he was a starring feature before, but one, we're seeing the first power play unit play about 90 seconds of the two minutes a lot of times. And he's also taking a ton of shots as a proportion. And you mentioned he was taking them farther out. And... You guys had some really interesting conclusions about how Matthew's usage changed and kind of became really the focal point to a greater extent than he was previously. Uh, do you want to go on about that, Olivia? Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned before that the play in the 2018 season was to funnel it down to Tavares. And I mean, Matthews was still taking a lot of shots just because when he gets it, he's going to shoot it. But um, the it wasn't immediately obvious that he was taking like a huge chunk of the unblocked shots on the power play whereas this year it was very obvious and he was getting passes from the point a lot and he would just take the one-timers and that was something that he wasn't necessarily able to do when he played on the other side so again we were only recording shot assists and not just passes so I think him playing on his strong side there could be an element of I think survivor bias there just because he's not always shooting it when he receives it on his strong side because it takes him longer to, you know, cradle the pass, look, and maybe people are in position for that, whereas one-timers he can get off quicker. Um, and then also I think having Nylander down there, he would step out onto the left side and he was a righty, so it was easy for him to look for Matthews on that side too. So it was like multiple different people looking for Matthews, whereas I think with the 2018 power play, Marner being right-handed, having um, Kadri and Tavares as options, 
I think those are really his options to go to for passing. And it was really hard to get the puck over to Austin if it wasn't coming from the point. Yeah, and it, it, one thing you guys point out uh, in the in the article is that Matthews is taking, I guess, fewer shots in 2019, and from and from quote unquote worse shot locations. Right, his his xG is uh, lower on the power play in 2019 versus 2018. Um, the other thing you guys point out is, and we've talked about this before on the pod, where xG does current public xG does not include pre-shot movement. Right, and what you guys kind of showed is that the nature of Austin Matthews shots this year are is such that more of them are coming off cross ice passes this year as opposed to last year whereas last year there was a lot of I think the term you guys used was low chaos and kind of passes from down low to where Austin Matthews was on the left side now it was a lot of passes from that were just you know cross ice and and Royal Road um and primarily from from Nylander uh first off is my summary of that accurate and secondly um do you think that was do, do you think that kind of quality change from matthews where the types of sh- uh, passes he's receiving preceding his shots has made up for the drop-off in quantity sean well um last year he's taken a lot more from the point because it was a little bit more difficult to get it to matthews because Tavares was the net front guy and as a left hand it's a little bit harder him to do that he did get to him a few times but with Nylander um stepping out on the right side especially or I guess on the left side I'm on her side right on the on the off side when he stepped out he was able to sort of find like these cross ice passes to um to Matthews for one timers or quicker shots and I think that element especially when you combine so there's two primary movements i think a lot of people think in low to high which is um sort of the basis for behind the net right you're forcing a goalie to now adjust his depth and then you also have that lateral movement that royal road is uh what we're commonly kind of referring to just kind of crosses a point on the ice you're forcing him you're forcing the goalie to to change not only um the angle or like where he's facing from right to left but also changing the depth and when you're changing like multiple things i think it makes it extremely hard on the goalie especially if you're shooting quick either with one timers or kind of like one touch snapshots um and so he was getting a lot more especially towards the end of the season because well nylander wasn't on the first unit until november or wasn't um really slotted in there when Tavares was out he stepped up but um he was just able to find like these low cross ice passes to Matthews. And I mean, they didn't connect as much as maybe you'd hope, but it's definitely like a positive sign in terms of the process. He was still getting um, plenty of shot assists from the guy at the point that's always going to happen. Um, and those are also the easier ones to probably turn into one timers and they can still be quite dangerous. And that's part of the reason his, he was taking shots from a little bit further out was he was still getting them from the point he was just taking one tyrants now instead of stepping in a few feet um but it was he was taking passes from all over the ice now that's really interesting in terms of just the way that that evolved uh one of your conclusions in that uh in that piece that was kind of surprising to me even though it makes sense from the numbers was marner to Tavares at the net not turning out to be as effective a play 
as maybe it seems like it should be, because intuitively, to me, that seems like that's exactly what I want, you know? Marner's a great passer, and Devaris is a net front guy, and, like, creating some chaos. But you guys found that that wasn't really paying out um, to the extent that might be expected. Uh, Marner got tagged as the culprit. That's the phrase that stayed with me. Um, do you want to expand on that a bit, Olivia? Um, well, Sean was the one that called Marner the culprit, so... <laughs> <laughs> Bruins bias. Yeah, pinning, yeah. pinning the blame Got on it. the Bruins fan. Good, you're, you're fitting in well here. Yeah. Um, well, I think the reason that um, the two of us personally just didn't like that play, I wouldn't say it's like necessarily less effective. I just think it's not a good use of the efficiency on the power play because they do have such high-skilled players. Like, um, to us, I think that play is more of a play that's fit for lower-skilled teams, like getting the puck to the net and trying to jam it in. When you have shooters like Matthews, it just seems like you're wasting an opportunity to get, like, such a good quality shot. And and now adding Nylander, who is was a better shooter this season than he was last year, I think that is something that you could exploit too. But I think the issue was just deflections aren't really forcing the goalie to move and when the Leafs are unable to you know take advantage of all the rebounds that could occur from that play it just isn't really you know effective it's generating like a lot of expected goals because it is so close to the net but I wouldn't say that that is the best use of the skill on the Leafs power play yeah I actually I want to touch on that because Fulman and I have discussed, you know, the the least power play for uh, however long we've been doing this podcast, which is a couple, three or four years at this point. And one of the things that kind of struck us um, when when reading this is that we both personally quite liked the the Hiller power play, um, because and primarily because it seemed to be so good at generating those chances in tight, right? So even if we go back to um, twenty seventeen before the Leafs have Tavares, the, that power play unit with um, Marner on the right side, JVR in front, Kadri bumper, Bozak on the left side, basically just there to make up the numbers, to be completely honest. And then um, I guess it was Riley at the point. That uh, unit kind of obliterated the league when it, turned, when it comes to expected goals and actually actual goals. And, and, uh, their, their goal rate was uh, stupendous. And then Tavares comes in, and it seems like they keep kind of the same structure. They they swap out uh, James Van Riemsdyk for or f- uh, for John Tavares. Tavares is obviously a, a better player than than JVR all in all. But the one area where JVR might have a beat is as a net front player on the power play, where, where you know JVR might be in a class of you know maybe four or five players in in, in the league who are you know as good as him uh, in front. So we kind of always liked this setup, um, and it always, as you said has turned out a lot of great expected goals numbers, but I see your point in that it doesn't necessarily give the Leafs elite shooters a chance to outperform their expected goals, which is what they're they're really good at. With Tavares in particular, I, I'm still not sure on whether I prefer the 2018 or 2019 power plays because as good a player as Tavares is, he's one of those brilliant players with a really ugly highlight reel of goals. A lot of his goals are just him being in the right spot at the right time. Um, and when we look at these power plays in general, you know, the, the first unit power play in both 2018 and 2019, they score at, like, very, very similar rates, which actually shocked me. I have the numbers here. In 2018, it was 8.65 goals, 4 for 60. In 2019, it was 8.56. So, you know, basically, you know, identical. Given that their performance and goal terms seem to be the same, 
do you guys still have kind of a clear preference for the 2019 structure and, and, and setup? Sorry, I know that was a very, very long monologue by me, but um, <laughs> that that's, that's, leads up to that question, Sean. So I think the, like, playing it down from Marner isn't necessarily a flawed, and like Olivia said, it's definitely good for lower-skilled teams, and the reason at least I believe that I think it's more of like a high-variance type. And so you can score a lot of goals like that if you're especially lucky and if you work hard and you're skilled down low. You could you could score a, you know, a good amount of goals like the Leafs did, um, but it could also sort of fail as well. Whereas when you're kind of getting one-timers and things like that, at least I feel you're a little bit more in control of your own destiny. Like you're not playing to that chaos type because the chaos might also work in favor of the penalty killing team, right? That's the whole purpose of calling it kind of chaos. And so if you can kind of take one-timers with your skilled players or, um, you know, even like a solid wrist shot, um, you know, maybe with some nice pre-shot movement or something, when you're taking like more of your skilled shots with your skilled players, you can kind of control that destiny a little bit. Um, and so for us, it's a, it's a preference that we like the what happened this past year. But I mean, the other way can work as well. I think everything, you don't play enough power play minutes to really have a good, to be able to cite, decipher so well uh, the differences between different systems and players and anything because you know, the Leafs played in both seasons a little bit short of 400 minutes on at five on four. And so you think of that, like if you're talking about even strength, you know, and comparing numbers to even strength, it, it, it just, it would baffle you to even talk about talking about teams in terms of like 400 minutes of, of play. And so I think really everything is kind of talking about different theories and trying to understand what they do and your own preferences and what you would do and you know how to go about things in the future trying to evaluate those things and go about it in the future that's actually something that you guys touched on and i know that as you said ryan stimson is a big fan of the behind the net oriented power play where you get more movement in that area of the ice and it's interesting you know we don't see it much you guys referenced an, an example from international hockey when the swiss team was doing it it's kind of intuitively not as appealing to me in terms of, like, I keep thinking, okay, part of the use of the lateral movement is they could shoot at one end or the other end, whereas if they're behind the net, your shot options are basically kind of a wraparound or a jam player. You kind of have to pop out before you can do a shot. But I know there's some evidence out there also that this actually does um, have a real impact, that this gets all sorts of movements. Um do you want to maybe enlighten us a little bit on that one, Olivia? Just the behind the net and the use that it has? Yeah, um, I mentioned, I'm going to mention Nylander again because when we looked at his shot assists, like he was playing like a bumper and he was also sliding down. And, you know, he does like to carry the puck below the goal line a lot. And in that situation, you know, you mentioned that you feel like the only options there is like a jam or like someone popping out. And he does do that. I think. You know, he scored that goal, like, between the legs, like, right in front of the net. Like, he can score from there. But I think the main thing is that he also is able to make passes. I think in able, if he is able to make do both things, he would be effective at running the power play from behind the net. And also it has to do with, again, movement. In the video of the Swiss team, you can see, like, a player exploiting the gap and coming through and getting open for 
the guy behind the net. And so because the defender's backs are turned away from the players and it's hard for the goalie to track the puck if it's behind the net all the time, I think that's where the advantage comes in. Is that you have someone who can, uh, who can read the play well enough to know when to shoot and when to pass. And you also have players that are able to move in, um, exploit the gaps within the defense and put the defenseman in awkward situations. I think that's when it really is effective. But we haven't seen enough of that in the NHL to really know how an NHL power play penalty kill would react to something like that. It would obviously have to be a lot faster and the players would have to read the play a lot better. But I think it'd be interesting just to see it you know, tested out. And it was a little bit, I think, with Nylander. Yeah, it's a bit of a game of cat and mouse, right? Because, you know, Sean alluded to this earlier, where power plays are, are set up essentially to counter the dominant strategy. Or sorry, penalty kills are set up to counter what is the dominant strategy in power plays, which is kind of the generic 1-3-1. If you change that, what sort of change does that force from the power plays? And can you gain an advantage um, by exploding that when they maybe don't have time or don't have a don't have time to react, you know, appropriately? It's actually interesting. It'll be interesting to see if, I mean, if the playoffs happen at this point. Um, given what we've heard about you know, the various COVID tests. It'll be interesting to see if some team kind of whips out something new or interesting in a short playoff series, because that seems like it could be a real advantage, don't you think, Like to completely catch a team by, by surprise? Yeah, I mean, and especially you have so much time to prep. And, you know, you look forward to Columbus, for example, and they have a very aggressive D1 meeting. The strong def- side defenseman is going to approach the guy on the half wall very aggressively. He's going to kind of come very far out from where sort of the net front is. And then the D2, the defenseman at the net, is essentially what you'd call like sealing the zone. And so traditionally, um, right, when you have Nylander playing especially, and he kind of comes down low, now that D2 is isolated in a two-on-one, um, and if you continued maybe to, to try to set up and shift sides behind the net, which is something that Philly started to do quite a bit. Now you, you force a rotation from that side. You have the D1 kind of way away from the net, but the D2 is kind of stuck. Um, you know, penalty killers aren't necessarily prepared for those types of things. And so if you can introduce maybe some sort of new movement to take advantage of these uh, very aggressive D1, which is going to prevent one-timers, for example, then, um, yeah, it would be interesting to see how the, how the Leafs particularly are preparing for that, or Columbus is well coached how they're, you know, looking to prepare for the Leafs. So it'd be interesting. We've never had a series. You know, this is only five games. So we've never had a playoff series um, that you've had literal months to prepare for, and that you know who you're playing. So yeah, it would be interesting to see if if anything kind of gets introduced that's quite new. Yeah, that really seems like it's an opportunity to kind of have almost like an, a little arms race in terms of power plays and penalty kills as they kind of try and prepare and adapt and outthink each other in a way that they may not have time to do, generally speaking. Um, going forward, you guys talked about things you might recommend to the next Leafs power play coach. As we know, Paul McFarland is returning to junior hockey, and so there may be totally new ideas coming in. Do you want to talk about what you recommended going forward? I know you've already been touching on it throughout this, but just to kind of really lay it out. Um, Yeah, I think the main thing would just be uh, adding movement. Like Sean said, it would mostly be activation because it would be something very new. And I think the Leafs have done a little bit of that, like having Tavares, you know, come out to the bumper sometimes to like 
pick a one-timer from Matthews, who is surprisingly able to thread that pass through. Um, that's something that the Leafs have done. So seeing a little bit more of that. And then I think getting Matthews into a better scoring position, not that he's a bad scorer where he is, but um, getting him into the slot like he wants to be in even strength play, getting him there on the power play is something that they could work with. And that would correlate with like movement and activation. And then just, again, like Sean said, moving the puck behind the net and forcing rotations. Um, right now, I think whenever the Leafs want to get the puck to the other side, they tend to go to the point and then the point will move it to the other side. And getting that rotation from behind the net, again, the defenders are turned the other way. Like they're not facing the other players on the ice. The goalie is you know, not as able to keep track of the puck as easily. I think those are things that are small enough that they would be easy to implement without having to work on it and like with a new coach. Right, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, I guess we can probably kind of not wrap up, but to kind of summarize, and I, I, I'm interested to see what your thoughts are on on this in a couple ways. First off, from an analyst perspective, what's kind of the next step for you guys? So, I one thing I'm always interested in with research projects, which this one, this work effectively is, is every research project kind of answers a question, then asks three or four more. Right, and those can be really interesting, really inspiring sometimes. So, what's the research question that this project has spawned that you're most interested in answering, even if it can't necessarily be answered right now with current data? Um, I think, I mean, Olivia might have a different opinion, but I think it would be interesting to see how players make decisions in terms of when they shoot, because, you know, we sort of did address the fact that, um that the Leafs are shooting less. And of course we think it's because they're more picky, but why, and understanding why that may be. And cause it can't necessarily be entirely systems based um, in my opinion. And so understanding maybe how certain habits had changed in terms of when they choose to shoot um, would be interesting. Do they have open lanes or is it from certain players that they feel more comfortable or certain locations on the ice that they receive the puck at or, you know, different things around that. I think the, how you pull the trigger is, is kind of interesting to me um, regarding this project, at least. Yeah, and one thing we kind of talked about, but we just didn't really focus on like entries very much, but we did talk about, like whenever we were looking at entries, um, I think Sean brought up a point where this, like the sides that, like Marner and Matthews would enter the zone in sometimes were just not really efficient because they would have to like skate all the way around to set up in their position and stuff like that. So maybe maximizing efficiency on setting up off entries and how that affects you know zone time and um, goal scoring rates and stuff like that. But we you know we didn't really look at that. We may, mainly just tracked entries for the sake of looking at total zone time. Right. Those both seem like really interesting. Uh, project. Uh, Sean, actually, the, the one you, you mentioned is something I find really interesting because I remember reading this paper uh, from Luke Bourne, who I, who's a researcher for the Sacramento Kings in the NBA. And he had this paper essentially on what are called Markov decision processes for when NBA players shoot, right? Because every time you shoot, both in hockey and basketball, you're saying, okay, now we no longer have the ball, but I'm exchanging that for a certain probability chance of increasing my points or my score, or the team's points or, or score. 
right? So there's like an internal calculation that goes on. It's like an internal optimization problem of when is it worth shooting, right? We, we get mad. Leafs fans get mad at Tyson Berry for, you know, shooting from, you know, 85 feet out with a guy's shin pads in his face. And we, because we think it's a bad decision, right? Based on that sort of calculus. So yeah, I 100% agree with that as an interesting area of research because that really gets at the core of what hockey is, even, even at even strength. Shooting is, you know, giving up the puck for a chance to score. Yeah, I mean, in understand the things that you might need, for example, are well, they'd be given with tracking data. I mean, teams would be able to use them, but you'd want to know where the defenders are standing, especially. I think that would be a, a key aspect, um, and possibly understanding yeah, sure. how certain sort of well, I wouldn't say pre-shot movement because again, it's a decision. So certain passing movements may affect the um, the opponent's positioning. I think that those would all be very interesting. They'd be huge projects. I'm sure some teams will actually look into this once they have tracking data. Um, but I think that's so interesting. Like you said, it's just basically fundamentally what the sport is and trying to understand the most fundamental decision-making processes. We're trying to understand it already in terms of like entries and exits, for example, um, to be able to have that data, understand like the most pure um, decision that you make, which is to shoot, uh, would be extremely interesting. I do really like that you guys are exploring these things and this efficiency and what Olivia was talking about in terms of, you know, getting more productive entries, entries that are prone to leading to more uh, effective setups. Because I think probably most hockey fans have remarked on how ubiquitous the drop pass is as an entry, and I know that your piece touched on this. It's that basically the Leafs have either a drop pass or a double drop pass, which is a drop and then a D to D, and they kind of just run that one out, you know, rain or shine. It's it's often one of those two entries, and it would be sort of really interesting to know, is there a lot of uh, potential to innovate there to do something that looks different, or if this really is optimized um, to get the best results at this level? Um I, I do wonder, do you think that there's like an entry out there that teams aren't trying enough or that should at least be contemplated and looked at? Um, something that I mentioned is this is something that I did when I played, like a team that I played on. We had this kind of power play entry and it was the idea of having the two players who I think would be Nylander and Tavares on power play one. They kind of just like, you know, they're up the ice and they're kind of like an option like maybe a passing entry if like you know Matthews or Marner are able to draw the defenseman towards them they'll leave like Nylander and Tavares open but maybe seeing them move a little bit like whether it's like lateral movement or like you know circling back and like supporting the puck more I think that could be something that you know will give you more options and then we mentioned with the five forward power play uh having Spezza is just he is very good at entries and on power play two, they basically depend on him to do them and not only does he attempt a lot of them his efficient his efficiency rate is very high so having him on the power play if there ever was a need for a five you know forward power play that's just another option that like teams would have to account for i think right now teams basically just watch marner like they know marner is going to try and carry it in and if he can't carry it in then they drop to matthews i think teams know that and having Marner and Matthews as like 1A or 1B and then introducing Spezza to it, I think that could 
just open up a ton of different options. So I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the play would be, but just having more options and different opportunities to enter the zone, I think is a is a big part of it. Right, makes sense. I, I, in general, it's just teams could probably stand, and this is like a common theme in what we've discussed, teams could probably stand to introduce a bit more, as you term it, activation, right? And a bit more um, movement and a, a bit more, I guess, uh, dynamics, dynamics into, into what they're doing, right? Um, and doing so in a structured way would probably would probably help, right? Because similar to what Sean said about the 131, the, the dropback is also like a relatively newish thing where I felt like I started seeing it, you know, a handful of years ago, and now it's just completely ubiquitous. And before then, I, I, it wasn't... It certainly didn't seem to be such a dominant strategy for entries the way it is now. Yeah, I mean, the thing is... I think the Leafs are partly to blame. I mean, in when the Leafs basically started to depend on them, they're wildly successful. I mean, the Leafs enter at a fairly high rate. I believe, like using Corey's data, Corey Schneider's data, um, like sixty-six percent probably is something like average, um, maybe a little bit less uh, to control entries. And we could have some sort of little bias, I guess, into terms of what we consider controlled entry and what Corey does. But, um, you know, 72, 74% is kind of what the Leafs control at. I mean, they control at a fairly high rate. And so it's almost like they will give up maybe three to five seconds doing a drop pass in order to make sure that they control it. But, I mean, and like the you look at the Bruins, for example, and where they become a polar opposite in their power play is that Cassidy has come out and said that he hates the drop pass and they never use it. Well, they'll occasionally use it specifically on PP2, but um, they tried to never use it. And in a sense, they also try to stretch. They'll try to crew will just tee one up from like the neutral zone and then Pasternak's trying to go in and like retrieve it and catch like penalty kills off guard and so their whole mindset on entries is speed 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 we want to get it back up the ice as quickly as possible and you know possibly even um sacrifice controlling it just to try to get into the zone a little bit quicker and in a structured manner because you have a man advantage you should be able to win the puck back and so they're very speed oriented where the um, Maple Leafs are much more possession-oriented, which kind of goes with Babcock's um, full coaching style starting. Well, I didn't really um, get too, too into hockey until he was in Detroit. So, I mean, he had a very possession-based style in Detroit with everything that he did. So I think that was part of his influence. That's um, really interesting to see that kind of echoing effect because... To be honest, Mike Babcock's name in Toronto is not <laughs> held in the highest regard lately. Um, so it's interesting seeing that that kind of legacy. Um, is there anything else that uh, you two wanted to, to bring up? Or do you also want to plug the site where this was posted and your social accounts? Well, I mean, we kind of just created the site. I don't know if we're going to like post more things there. I guess we will have to talk about it. But it was really just... Um, a site that we created just to be able to put it somewhere um and we kind of wanted to own own it as well um and so it's seventh at austin like spelled like austin matthews and um it's because uh, i mean austin matthews obviously is star for the maple leafs and then 
Um, Lando Norris is like one of our favorite Formula One drivers, and he finished seventh at the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin this past year. So um, I'm actually a big F1 fan, so I I, I appreciated the pun. <laughs> yeah, I think we actually got some. Once you like kind of like said it on Twitter, we got a couple of uh, positive reviews on the names. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter at Sean S H A W N Ferris ninety eight. Then I'm at Olivia Y Lynn, and that's L I N. Awesome. Um, thank you guys so much for for joining us for letting us take an hour of your time. This was really really fun. And uh, once again, like if it's not clear to our listeners that you know you really should read this uh, piece. Um, I hope it is now, right? It's a really, really wonderful piece. It's not something we see often in hockey stats anymore. It's it's the type of work that I think is really, really productive and uh, really interesting to, to dig into because it leads into sorts of interesting discussions like this. So thank you both so much for, for joining us. Of course, thank exactly. you for having thank us. Thank you. So uh, thank you to, to Sean and Olivia uh, for, for joining us. We are now in the second part of this podcast, which is going to be uh, a bit of a downer and then a bit of an upper. Uh, so we're going to start with the downer first, which is yes. uh, the news that broke last night that Austin Matthews has tested positive for COVID. Yeah. And unfortunately, we don't know too much more than that. All we can do is hope that he makes a swift and full recovery from that. It does bring kind of into sharp relief the risks that sports leagues are facing as they try to return to play. You know, athletes are going to get this, and unfortunately, I don't think we have a clear idea of the long-term effects, but they can be, you know, substantial. And, I, you know, I don't want to speculate or anything. I just want to acknowledge that possibility. Yeah, and, I mean, in Europe, uh, European football has returned. And as far as I know, there haven't been any disasters as of yet, but Europe as a whole has done a lot better containing the virus than... I, I'm not going to say North America, I'm going to say the USA, because Canada is not, you know, far from being perfect, and I don't want this to turn into a Canadian superiority thing, because, mm-hmm. you know, our shit stinks too. Right. But by an order of magnitude, even the worst performing areas in, in Canada, which are Ontario and Quebec, are doing considerably better than a lot of areas of the U.S., and a lot of heavily populated areas of the U.S., including Florida and Arizona and Nevada— and Texas, which are, you know, all potentially rumored landing spots for hub cities in the NHL. And Florida, in fact, is the hub for the NBA. Right. So yeah. it's it's a different set of problems that the North American leagues are going to face because the USA is just not remotely in the same spot as, uh, as Europe or even as Canada. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been seeing the Korean baseball organization, which has been running a season and has attracted new fans worldwide because of their ability to keep going when not much else has been going aside from European soccer. But the management of the virus has been so much better in Korea than it has been uh, in the United States. And so we don't... And almost anywhere, really. Korea's... Yeah, they've honestly done an, an excellent job in terms of facing this very quickly and in a way that saved lives. And so as we kind of return to play and i know on an emotional level we're all at least very tempted by the idea of re- returning sports leagues you know i we obviously love hockey we would love to have 
uh, more things to discuss and to watch and to engage with when we're all still semi-distanced. But yeah, th there's a lot that has to be dealt with here that is, is going to be difficult. And again, I don't know if this is going to work or not. I don't know how well this can be managed. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about the ethical issues of the risks that players are being asked to undertake. And that's certainly a very thorny problem. And when a star like Austin Matthews can get this, I think it really brings it into sharp relief, what we're facing. And that's all we can do is kind of wait and see, I suppose. Yeah, uh, should, we should note that um, Matthews is not the only person in the NHL to have tested positive for COVID. Um, reportedly, I guess a couple of, or a handful of Arizona Coyotes players have. Uh, Tampa Bay, I believe, canceled uh, their their plans to return to honest activities because of a, I guess, because of multiple positive COVID tests. Um, there's potentially more that we haven't heard about yet. So, yeah, this is not... This is not an idiosyncratic one-off thing. This seems like it's going to be part of the norm because, you know, a lot of these players in all North American sports are living in what look like really severe hotspots for the virus. Mm -hmm. and, so as you come up, players are yeah. probably going to get COVID and you and have to be yeah, prepared for that. Th this is what happens when you treat a pandemic as, you know, as a political, as a matter of political opinion, mm -hmm. right? So, you know it's in a tough spot right there's a very very reasonable chance that even the best laid plans of these leagues are not going to come to fruition because of you know the the public health response in large parts of north america yeah so we will see how things develop in the coming weeks uh but we would like to end on a sort of funny note and perhaps a shadow Freud way. not for everyone no and again, we probably are bad people for some of our joy in this, but the Buffalo Sabres are on one this past week. They dismissed general manager Jason Botterill, which was interesting because a few months ago we were saying, you know, geez, maybe Jason Botterill is going to get fired for what a bad job he has done in terms of his inability to show any real progress with the Sabres and his completion of several really dubious moves, especially the Ryan O'Reilly trade. But the Pagulas gave him a vote of confidence, and then a few weeks later, they said, nope, actually, screw that, he's fired. And so, one, that looked a little weird, because the question was, what has actually changed in the intervening weeks, where you realize, no, we want to fire them. But then, the Sabres kind of just went uh, full massacre, I suppose, on their front office and fired a huge number of people. And and this is true, as per Elliot Friedman, they apparently accidentally fired their IT guy in the blur of dismissals that they engaged in and had to hire him back because they realized, oh, we didn't mean to fire him. But there was an enormous amount of uh, professional bloodletting in that organization. They dismissed a huge portion of their staff and their hockey operations just as uh, Kevin Adams, who was an ex-player, moves from the business side into the full-time GM job. And so now he has to build an entire department, basically, and save the whole organization from, well, what's been a decade of kind of quagmire failure. And 
Wow, that's a big lift to take on, especially since the Pagulas have been saying things like, we trusted the hockey people and they let us down. And so now they seem to be sort of saying, we're going to do whatever we want. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, I mean, you you brought this up, I forget if it was on Twitter or, or in Slack between us, but it, you said that, it, you know, they're not far off from being a Melnick. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're pushing that territory now where the owner is deeply involved in hockey operations. Uh, there is now increasingly a bit of a sense that budgetary concerns are playing a role. Obviously, you know, even rich people don't have infinite money, and Terry Pegula's fortune is in their own gas. And so the collapsing that commodity price has probably not helped his, his bottom line. But there's a lot of kind of cut and, sl- and slash in that... Uh, front office and also there's just a sense that they kind of ran out of patience with the whole org and said okay screw it I'm just going to keep pointing around the office and shouting you're fired until my arms get tired you know they they just went for a near clean sweep now the Leafs did something sort of like this uh, when Brandon Shanahan famously fired a lot of the pre-existing staff but the Leafs you know, one, went on to rebuild a staff and, you know, didn't try to do it on the cheap. And two, the Leafs were in a position where they were prepared to kind of rebuild and go forward, and they did so. The Sabres, the way things have been going, it's like now who is left to guide this team at all? Like, what's going to be the the continuing wisdom in the front office? You, you know, you can say that they failed so badly that maybe it was time for a lot of people to get dismissed, but... There's going to be a whole lot of inexperience going on, it seems like. That's the impression that I get, anyway. Yeah, so it's... Let's put it this way, I'm not worried about the Sabres um, for the next couple years. Yeah, there and a lot of people who are kind of reluctant, maybe, to be all that explicitly critical, like a lot of the mainstream reporters like you know Pierre Lebrun and the like, who are usually pretty temperate, and their discussions of front offices, and even sympathetic. They basically said, like, look, the way that the Pagulas are doing this, they're never going to win anything. You know, you can't constantly wipe out and gut people, and you also have to acknowledge, when you say all of these people we hired let us down, well, your job is to hire good people. And if this has been happening repeatedly, where you hire people who disappoint you and then turn out to be bad and replace them with people who do the same... At a certain point, the common element in the failure is you, and not just them. So, yeah, wow, it's bad down there. I would be pretty upset, frankly, if I were a Sabres fan. Pretty too, really too very. Yeah, well, I mean, Sabres fans have had it, you know, so good for so long. It's about time they got some bad news. (laughs) It's not like Detroit, where it's like, okay, they got to be the gold standard organization for 20 years. Buffalo has, they have suffered. I have to admit, I, I feel for them as, you know, a team that also has had some recent dark times. It's uh, <laughs> it's pretty bad there. Yeah, very much so. So, yeah, I guess we just wanted to laugh a bit about, about Buffalo um, and hope that the virus doesn't completely eradicate any chance we have of laughing at them going forward, you know, in, fu- in future seasons. Yeah, no kidding. Um, So I think that's pretty much all we wanted to discuss this week, correct? Yeah. 
Great. So, yeah, you can find all of mine and Fudelman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. Uh, we're now doing the top 25 under 25. I say we. Uh, I, I mean the entire site, not us, who have basically not contributed anything as of yet. Um, <laughs> hey, I've got one in draft. Yeah, you, you're writing about... Oh, we can't say who you're writing about, but... Um, I know. You, you're, A mysterious you're writing... character to be named this week. The article will go up, so... <laughs> the 2022 least first-round pick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, so... Uh, that's always fun to to discuss um, and yeah you can also catch us on Twitter at RV and AT Fulleman thank you for listening and we'll see you in a couple weeks yeah.